house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. By war. A stranger came into their lives. It's out of the question. Sir, my orders are to billet an officer in your home. Bella Bambina. If you could tell me where I'm going to sleep. In my daughter's room. But where will your daughter sleep? It's none of your business where I sleep. Ah. He's the enemy. He's living in your house. The other night when you were dancing, I thought I could watch you forever. You think you can come here and turn my whole world upside down? You love him? When you fall in love, everything becomes possible. And welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that bought you flour for Valentine's Day, so I guess go bake us a cake with it. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Ciao, Bella. Oh, no. <laughs> Bella Bambina. <laughs> oh, my God. We're in I for so much of that. I am a humble plumber <laughs> who plays the and I go down the tubes to other lands. I like the opera. We sing of the opera. Oh, my God. So much of this movie reminded me of, like, the worst scenes of The Godfather Part 3, and I can't even fully explain why. Oh, my God. Maybe it's, like, that it was, like, Nicolas Cage, and he's, like, one of the family, and I had to keep reminding myself that, like, oh, no, really, he, re- like, he is at least, like, by heritage Italian. So it's, like, maybe there were stranger possible casting options for this, but he makes it seem like he's never even heard of the country of Italy in this movie. Like, it's really... <laughs> like, if you put a plate of spaghetti in front of him, he would be like, what? Like, he's I don't know what you talk about. Brother. He's the frat Mario brother. <laughs> like, Vincenzo. Mario Luigi, and Mario Luigi and then Nicola. Nicola comes by and they're all just like... <laughs> It's a you, cousin Nicola. <laughs> My life like, has not oh, been the same, by the him. way. <laughs> My life has not been the same since you told me that Marissa Tomei is uh, an uh, anagram for "It's a Me, Mario." <laughs> that was not my discovery. That was there was a tweet that went viral, and I but immediately, you, of course, sent it to you. You you alerted me to it, and I wish again, I knew whose it was. I would shout them out. But yes. I'm like the lead character in Pi, who like now that this information is in my brain that this exists, 
I'm just like, I'm obsessing over it, and it's truly fantastic. Um, how are you? I am great. Speaking of anagrams, the movie we're talking about, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, is oh like uh, at least a spiritual anagram for, like, I don't know, Bush did 9-11, or, no, cut that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it has, it's weirdly, like, Captain Corelli's Mandolin feels like a throwback to movies that we weren't ready to throw back to. Like, I don't know yeah. who was even clamoring. Like, and for some reason, it also feels like Miramax, and this is not a univer- This is not a Miramax movie, it's a universal movie, although we'll talk about the sort of, like, behind-the-scenes crossing of the streams between those two companies. Um, but it feels like, ever since Il Postino, like, Harvey Weinstein had wanted to make a movie like this that was sort of just, like, you know... Um, along the Mediterranean and something sort of like mm-hmm. sweeping and and beautiful and starring Penelope Cruz and and kept sort of assuming that like something like this would sort of sweep the American public away. I think it's the same kind of thing that led people to keep adapting Oprah's book club books. This yeah. was based on a novel. I don't think it was an Oprah's book club novel, but it might as well have been. It's also, you're right to bring up Miramax early because they just had, I think, UK rights and maybe a couple other countries for this movie, but... There's a story behind that, too, yeah. Oh, okay, well, I'm interested to hear whatever that is if you found that in your research, but, like, the fingerprints of an early 2000s Miramax movie feel like they're all over this, even if it's not theirs fully. Yeah. Um, why don't we get into the boilerplate and you do the 60 second and then I'll like lay out the, the production history behind this. So we don't wait a full half hour. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're going to get better about this. Getting the 60 second plot in Listeners, early. We have not been recording for a while. We stockpiled a bunch of episodes. We are both bright eyed and bushy tailed and we are ready to hit this episode hard for you today. It's, we have very much like first day of school energy after like Christmas break or something like yeah, that. We're very we're just, alert. And of course, we were both like, you know, nerdy, good at school kids. So like we weren't we didn't dread the first day of school as quite as much as maybe everybody else did. We'll say um, throw your tomatoes at us as you will. So the film we're talking about today, if which, you know, by the time you've clicked on this podcast, by the way, I always think it's so funny that we feel like we're like hiding the identity of this week's movie. By the fact, I mean, like you saw it, you saw it in your podcast list. You know what we're talking about. It's right there in the title. Anyway. Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is one of my, like, gold star, this had Oscar buzz titles, where just just me saying the title of Captain Corelli's Mandolin gives you a sense of what this had Oscar buzz is doing. Mm-hmm. Captain Corelli's Mandolin is the film we are talking about this week. It is directed by John Madden. It was, in fact, John Madden's follow-up to Shakespeare in Love. We'll get into that for sure. Written by Sean Slovo, based on the novel Corelli's Mandolin by Louis de Berniers. Let's say Bernier. Let's say Bernier. God, my I'm literally 50% French, by the way. You wouldn't know it, by the way. I am fully ignorant of all things of the French language. Like, I'm terrible at French. I'm sorry, Mom. Um, That's okay. That's apt because Nicolas Cage is terrible at Italian. Yes. <gasps> Perfect. Oh, my God. I'm thematic. I've always wanted to be thematic. Okay, so You are starring... one of the Corellis now. Bella Bambina. Putanesca. Okay. Um, Putanesca is the one that's like... Stew for whores, right? 
Uh, sure. You know that, like, I, I I think that's what, I think one of the, like, Italian dishes is literally just, like, give this to the prostitutes. Um, anyway, Italian, it's a beautiful <laughs> romance language. This movie is starring Nicolas Cage, Penelope Cruz, John Hurt, which is, like, of all the things that made me laugh first in this movie was the idea that, like, John Hurt emerges as this, like, Greek doctor sort of, like, lord of the island. I was just like, oh, my God, you guys. He's a wonderful actor. But, like, Greek May he, he does not seem. May he rest in peace. Love him. Love you, John Hurt. Um, Christian Bale, which was a surprise, I think, to the both of us, that he was the Christian Bale second showing in this movie. fully like a tan newsy. <laughs> First For of all, sure. the the would be racial dynamics of this movie are absolutely insane in Bananas. a way that like maybe we we weren't being this fully brazen much longer after this movie, but like right. everybody's supposed to be Greek. Nicolas Cage is it's, an Italian stereotype, constantly flipping pizzas in the air. It's such an American conception of, well, it's just like, well, they're from somewhere in Europe, so they can be from everywhere in Europe. And it's just like, that doesn't quite it's work. It's a real puttanesca of European <laughs> locations. <laughs> it's a real pasta primavera happening here on the screen. Um so what I say, but, John Hurt, Christian Bale, and Irene Pappas, who is um, kind of wonderful in this movie and was an actress yeah. I wasn't, like, aware of by name, but, like, she's been in Zorba the Greek and Guns of Navarone, and she's sort of the the authentic, the, the your nod Greek towards authentic. what is supposed to be a fully Greek cast. Yeah, exactly. Um, premiered August 17th, 2001, four days before my 21st birthday. What if that's how I celebrated my 21st birthday? You got like drunk a, off of Captain Corelli's supply. Brought all my friends to go see Captain Corelli's mandolin. That's such a, like, Martin from The Simpsons thing to do. Just sort of like, we're all gonna go see Captain Corelli's mandolin, and then everybody wants to beat me up afterwards. <laughs> anyway, that's the film we're talking about this week. Christopher, I don't want to delay us any further. I want to just throw oh, you boy. right into the Mediterranean and get you started on this I week's task. I throw this movie into the Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, probably. Okay. All you right. have one I, minute, I, sir. I'm very rusty on this because we've had some guests. It's been a while since I've done one of these, but like, like sure. we've said, we have a very first day of school energy. Mm-hmm. I will do my best. To at least get a B on this test. 131 minutes worth of Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Are you ready? Sure. Starts now. All right. So Captain Corelli's Mandolin takes place on the island of Cephalonia in the Greek Isles during World War II. They are uh, not necessarily invaded because it's not hostile by uh, the Italian forces led by uh, Captain Corelli, played by Nicolas Cage. Um, he falls in love or like gets obsessed with Palacio, who's played by... Uh, b- 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 Penelope Cruz. She's the daughter of the like village, um, like Doctor Man, played by. Uh, d- 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 we already talked about this, um, but seconds. anyway, she is engaged to Christian Bale, who eventually goes and fights off in the war. Doesn't write her letter, so it's like she like makes herself like fall in love. Doesn't make herself fall in love with Corelli, but anyway, like the Nazis come and like take over the island, and then it's like the uh, the Greeks partner with the Italians to like. Have, like fight against them, but then they uh, the they kill all of the Italians, and then it's like a hostile takeover of uh, Greece, and then like they kind of save Corelli, but then they I, he eventually comes back to the island. Well done. It very much becomes a war movie at like minute yeah. ninety. And sometimes becoming a war movie is the best thing about the movie because it at least 
then becomes about something urgent. Up until that point, so much of the movie is literally just like Italian soldiers kind of kicking back. Yeah, and relaxing. In the Greek countryside. Deep shout out to me not being able to just say the word John Hurt in my 60-second plot description. (laughs) Um, Why I couldn't just like either move on or not mention it. It's the curse of the 60-second plot description. It's very... You're like, yes, the movie becomes urgent after being very placid, but it also just like it becomes about something else other than falling in love with your oppressor. Right. So it's kind of also like, thank God, but then you still can't really track the military stuff. Well, it kind of goes by very quickly. You can see why there might be an interest in doing a story about this sort of sliver of time in between the point where the Italians surrender in World War II and the Germans surrender at a point where the both of them are working together and sort of co-occupying certain areas of the Mediterranean, like this island in Greece. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of like all, you know, multiple conflicting agendas and who who's doing what and who's going to obey what orders and who's going to defy them and who can you it trust was- and this whole kind of thing. And it's tense and it's sort of satisfyingly multi-leveled, but like in another movie, if it wasn't coming at the like hour and twenty five minute point, of... and like our access point to this military action is Nicolas Cage as a, a pizza chef, I don't know. Um... The movie makes such a great case for why he's a buffoon and why we like shouldn't invest ourselves in him in the person of Penelope Cruz, who literally is just sort of like. Why are you like this? Why is everything a joke to you? Why are like there are people dying and you're literally just like noodling away on your fucking mandolin? Mm-hmm. And then, but then the, the movie has her sort of like fall for him anyway, kind of undercuts all of this. I don't yeah, buy because their... of like what the movie has to be, but like you don't right. buy it at all. Not at all. Absolutely not at all. In fact, to the point where they have their like sex scene and it's sort of like interspersed it's a, it's sort of a um world war 2 grecian take on that scene in um what's the Diane Lane movie unfaithful mm-hmm. where she's on the train and sort of like remembering them having sex from like earlier it's like T- T- penelope cruz is like walking down this sort of like dirt path or whatever and she's and then remembering goes home to her, like her doctor dad <laughs> yes like, exactly you love him and it's like <laughs> did he watch them and she's like, How Papa, I showed my happen? breasts for uh, for this movie as was contractually required. Um, that felt it's very like, perfect. You, you love him. You love Live, him now. Yeah. Also, okay. That, you know, the romance was, we can sort of put that away as like unconvincing. We were unconvinced by the romance between Nicolas Cage and Penelope Cruz. I want to very briefly talk about how every time Christian Bale shows up in this movie, because he, he literally just like, comes and goes. He'll like show up and then he'll go off to war mm-hmm. again and then he'll show up and go. Yeah, off to he'll war go again. and deliver some newspapers. But every time he comes Damn back, he's like he's got either like shrapnel in his ass or like lice in his beard or just something where they have to like go to the doctor's house and like his mother played by Anne Rean Pappas and Penelope Cruz who plays his uh fiance essentially have to like dress his wounds and sort of just like <laughs> clean him up and get him sort of like back on track. And the entire time his mom is like my piece of shit son. She's like, thank God you're marrying my piece of shit son. Cause nobody else will. And it's just like, it's so funny. It's so charming. Like the way 
that this woman does it actually like it's the the best scenes of the movie are her and Penelope Cruz just sort of like commiserating over this like pathetic like strewn out body of Christian Bale it's very funny <laughs> also this is the movie that is the movie behind the still photo that I've like seen passing through my entire adult life of like here's where you see Christian Bale's butt in a movie and it's like him lying face down on this like medical table in the middle of Slab. the outdoors just like this outdoor like amongst the chickens and and goats or whatever like running around the yard and he's just there face down and his little bum bum is showing and it's always been the like on all those websites of like here's where you see celebrities naked and it's like christian bale and it's just like that point it's like amongst the other like american psycho stills that are always like they always try and get you to feel that those are like sexy where it's just like naked christian bale with a chainsaw and it's just like he's covered in blood i'm like fucked up but i'm not that fucked up like so instead his booty up in the air surrounded by chickens i don't even know if i would say opened your gates and seized the day (laughs) fuck you (laughs) he looks like a i will put you on a train and send you to santa fe like, this is post-American Psycho, yet it still looks like Newsies-era Christian Bale. It's a little wild to me. His bum-bum is so flat. And as somebody who has, like, a flat tushy, like, I get it. But it's so weird that I'm supposed to find this sort of just, like, a little bit sexy. And it's just like, your butt is a flat little pancake, buddy. I love you. Aww. But, you know. You do not love Christian Bale. I don't actually. That's funny. I kind of, but back then I did. Back then I was a huge Christian Bale fan. Back in like the American Psycho era of that, it's just like I was very much like justice for Christian Bale, as a lot of people were, because he was kind of the like the best actor that nobody knows his name. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I want to. I love who like made me like want to take back everything I have said positive about them in this movie is Nicolas Cage. Like Nicolas Cage, both of his <laughs> Oscar nominations should be Oscar wins. I love Nicolas Cage when he is very good. And like Nicolas Cage at least has like found a niche for himself these days. Yeah. Where he just gets to take things to 11 all the time in not always good movies, but like seems to be very happy. Not always good is a real generous little stretch of what you're saying. This is a lot of like, you yeah, know, yeah, it's a lot sub, of trash. Sub direct to uh, like on demand movies. It's it's really really shockingly for an A lister uh, and Oscar winner. It's shockingly terrible the kinds of movies that he will allow. However, to I would rather him be thriving, doing his own thing in like that kind of terrible movie whereas like completely floundering and making a fool of himself yeah this this is bad it's so Um, bad go continue no i was was just gonna say he's bad in this movie however the person that like got the most negative press from this movie yeah i think it's kind of unfair is penelope cruz but like this is the period where everybody this is pre or before it's all the 2001 blur of her dating Tom Cruise, but I don't right. know if she was dating him yet by the time of this movie. And everybody in the media was so had their knives out for her right. at this time. So this was August 2001. I believe Vanilla Sky was December 2001. Yeah. And I th- I'm pretty sure by that time that that movie premiered, they were publicly dating. Mm-hmm. Um, 
This is also, of course, 2001, the year that, like, Nicole Kidman steps out of her post-divorce, like, shadows. And it's just like, hi, I'm the best actress in the world, like, Moulin Rouge and the others, and yada, yada, yada. It's just, like, super amazing. Um, and Penelope Cruz, at this point, is at the end. I'm pretty. This is sort of like the end, because I think 2001 for her was both Captain Corelli's Mandolin and Blow, which, like, mm-hmm. Blow was not a poorly reviewed movie. I think Blow was sort of, like, mixed to positive in terms mm-hmm. of reviews. But, like, box office-wise, it didn't really make a dent. And I think they were expecting this to be, like, the movie that, you know, if all these other sort of frou-frou Oscar bait movies like All the Pretty Horses and Captain Corelli's Mandolin, if they weren't going to do it, at least Blow would be a box office hit and would be a hit with, like, younger people. And at the very least, that would cross her over. And it didn't. And all of a sudden now, she's getting, like, a lot of the, like, Razzie attention for this kind of movie, which you would think it would have been, like, all over Nicolas Cage, right? Mm-hmm. She's the one who's nominated for Worst Actress for both this movie and Blow and Vanilla Sky. She gets nominated for, like, it's like, every. I feel like every time we talk about Penelope Cruz, we're mentioning another yoga nomination that she gets, but, like, <laughs> another yoga nomination for this and All the Pretty Horses and Blow. Yoga, the yogas, of course, are the Spanish version of the Razzies. It's Goya. That always randomly show up in the movies that we do. Yeah, it's true. Um, She's nominated for the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, which I fully don't believe existed at the time. That really feels like a retcon to me, but prove me wrong, Stinkers Bad Movies Awards. Like, tell me... Or don't, or don't, don't. or don't ever contact me ever. (laughs) Yes. Um, Nominated for like worst on-screen couple for her coupling with Johnny Depp, Nicolas Cage, and Tom Cruise. It's just like, all right, like, yeah, calm down, down, everyone. But that was the attitude. That was the attitude by this time. It was just sort of just like, what a failure. They tried to sort of like thrust this woman upon us, and and it's like, I want to sort of temper because like we're looking at this through retrospect and just like knowing how great penelope cruz then would become although she was already great in spanish language movies so maybe it's a little Mm -hmm. bit different but i'm it's it's like alicia vikander we sort of view alicia vikander right now with a little bit of a skeptical eye and something akin to the fact that like she was sort of thrust upon us and was you know, marched up to an Oscar win for a movie that nobody really liked. And there's a sense that, like, she's not as good as we've been meant to believe she is because of, like, hype and, you know, the sort of, like, studio Hollywood machinations or whatever. And I think that was Penelope Cruz back then times 10. And so I think that explains a lot of, like, it was very fashionable to just be like, nice try, Harvey Weinstein. Like, we're not falling for this one as we're falling for, like, you know, eight to ten other things that he's sort of foisted upon us. But now that we get to Harvey and, you know, not to stump, trample upon what else you want to say. Um, The production history of this movie is a little bit interesting, especially as it pertains to some topics that, like, uh, we enjoy talking about a lot because originally this film, I believe, had like already started production with a different director in charge of this or movie. Or pre-production. It was was Roger it pre- Michelle, right? It was Roger Michelle. And Roger Michelle yeah. has a full-on heart attack and has to drop out of 
uh, production for Captain Crowley's Mandolin, and Universal, who was producing the movie, is freaking out. They need another director. For whatever reason, Universal decides the only acceptable replacement for Roger Michelle is John Madden. John Madden, who was coming off of a couple years ago, has won the Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. He's sort of the costume drama aficionado, but he, like Miramax, has him locked down on some contract where they get the option on his next two or three movies or whatever. And so Harvey Weinstein, being who he is, decides to play hardball and is like, okay, we'll let you have John Madden. We get not only the British distribution rights for Captain Crowley's Mandolin, which are kind of shit, but like I think it did better overseas than it did in America anyway, but like that's not the thing that they got. What they really got was U.S. domestic distribution rights for Bridget Jones's Diary, which does really well. So like yeah. once again, Miramax makes out like a bandit, and Universal, all they get is John Madden. And so reading about this in, once again, Down in Dirty Pictures, my main sort of source for industry gossip around this time, um, so, so many people were just like, just hire a different director? Like, why are you giving away... <laughs> the farm for John Madden. But again, it's so much because indicative. Of Shakespeare in love. It's so much indicative of what like perception is like back then. We are looking at John Madden through these very revisionist eyeglasses. But like at the time, who was to say that he wasn't, you know, the great sort of guru. But it does John Madden is a little bit reminiscent of I want to say Tom Hooper, but like Tom Hooper's a bad director. I don't think John I mean, Madden's Tom a bad Hooper director. Tom Hooper has taken, like, uh, for lack of a better word, we will call them risks in a way that John Madden never really has. And That's like, you true. You can't even necessarily pin down John Madden just to costume dramas. It's almost like stages. He's a really fascinating, like, he is maybe a pinnacle this had Oscar buzz director yeah or like one of the pillars of it because after this you have proof I would love to do an episode on proof yeah um kill shot the Mickey Rourke movie that's out well, for forever put a pin in that for a second because I do want to talk about John Madden's filmography it's very fascinating I want to put in because I think we sort of like just sort of mentioned Roger Michelle as a given that other people sort of like understand who he is. And so right. at the time... He is also one of the key This Had Oscar Bus directors as well. We talked about him when we talked about um, Hyde Park on Hudson. He was the director of that, and he was the and director Morning of Morning Glory. So we've talked about mm-hmm. two of his movies so far. Um, he, at the time, he was coming off of a huge success with Notting Hill. So you can see why they, you know, after you know, doing the Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant thing in that movie that they would be like, oh, okay, now do that with Nicolas Cage and Penelope Cruz and take it to Greece. And, um, but like we said, he has the heart attack. He's not able to do it. Roger Michelle, I think is a very fascinating director because he's sort of like, he's, I love directors whose careers go sort of like up and down, up and down and across mm-hmm. sort of genres in a very sort of unexpected way. He directed Peter O'Toole to an Oscar nomination in Venus, that movie that like nobody that I know saw. He did um, the sort of hot air balloon thriller Enduring Love <laughs> that I find so fascinating. He did a movie called The Mother that got a lot of like un, like low grade best actress buzz for Anne Reed. He directed 
my cousin Rachel, Rachel Weiss, in this very sort of like like lurid costume drama, my cousin Rachel, a couple years ago. He directed this movie that's coming out this year called Blackbird that I saw at TIFF last September with Susan Sarandon and Lindsay Duncan and Kate Winslet that's like really good, I think. So he's one of the directors that I, that like I, my ears perk up when I hear the name Roger Michelle. I don't know if it's the same for Mm -hmm. you. Uh, I mean, maybe not prick up. Maybe I, I, I get a hesitation in my stance. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the same would be true for John Madden. Um, Roger Michel, though, for this, especially coming off of Notting Hill, mm-hmm. even though you've pinpointed, you've mentioned him and shown like why he's kind of a director that's hard to place, I don't. Not to be like, I don't see it for her, but I don't understand <laughs> Roger Michelle for this movie. Maybe. I don't love that for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess I don't... F- I, it makes more sense for John Madden anyway, but that's very... I didn't know that, like, Miramax trade-off. Yeah. But, like, it makes sense, like, what is the closest thing that has made money and has had the type of success that Captain Corelli's Mandolin had... I think that does make sense that they would just want the guy who did Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. So even John... though like Shakespeare in Love is a comedy, this is not intentionally right. a comedy. Right. But I think so much of Shakespeare in Love, like it was a comedy, but I think its legacy was so much more just like what a beautiful costume romance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So John Madden has made seven movies since Shakespeare in Love, and he made a few handful before them and it's funny how we talk a lot about on this head oscar buzz about how a best uh you know an oscar winning director he didn't win best director but his film won best picture obviously um that kind of clout and cachet can carry you through a lot of your career that like any movie of yours basically will have oscar buzz because it's you and sort of you can sort of very easily see you, you know, ascending to that peak again. John Mann is a little bit of an exception where he's really fought his way back towards, like, prove it to us level. And he did kind of quickly. Captain Corelli's Mandolin will kind of do that for you. But I wanted to play a little bit of a game with you, Chris. (laughs) Um, Trying to identify, because his movies are... It's an interesting little grab bag of movies. And I dipped into one of our past quiz formats, which is... Guessing the films of John Madden by their parental guideline suggestions yeah. in the IMDb. So, are you ready to play a short little game? There's going to be a wide range of what is naughty about his movies. So, I'll like, have three. I'll have three clues. Um, you can guess after each one, and usually, I my guess is you'll probably get them within one or two. But I'll read all three anyway. So, for the first one, I'm not even going to give you a year because that'll be too easy. Um, scenes of drinking and minor drunkenness. That's the first one. Is that proof? That is not proof. Uh, second one is a few uses of the word arse. Uh, Shakespeare in love? Nope. And then the third one is many rifles are fired. Many rifles are fired and an elk implied to be killed during a hunting expedition. Mrs. Brown. This is Mrs. Brown, 1997's yeah. Mrs. Brown, Judy Dench's very first Oscar nomination, and John Madden's film right before Shakespeare in Love. All right, next Good one. Good movie. First clue. 
A man and woman have sex while slightly intoxicated. We see him thrust a couple times. The woman gasps and moans, implying climax. Nothing is shown other than their shoulders and above. Shakespeare in love. No. This is why I love this game, though, by the way, is because not only is it fun to guess, but also, like, the things that they call out and the way that they call them out on IMDb is very funny. All right, second (laughs) one. At least two F words, six S words... Two slang terms for sex, parentheses, laid. One slang term using male genitals, parentheses, dickhead. Six hells, two asses, one used with whole. Five boys, six girls, four parents, two drivers, and a partridge in a pear tree. And five oh. uses of goddamn seven Jesus expressions. The debt? No, although very possibly. Uh, the third one is where you're going to get it. A man describes math conferences he goes to where people drink and do drugs to improve their creativity. Oh, proof? This is proof. Yes. I don't remember a sex scene being that elaborate. Let's go back. Let's proof. go back and watch the thrusting in proof. All right. Next one. Redacted lead actress is forced to undress down to her undergarments and her nipples are visible through her top, but very briefly. that shakespeare in love it is not um you're just gonna keep guessing shakespeare in love and i respect that about you yeah yeah yeah. second one many shooting scenes blood spatters and fighting shots uh the dead no third one um (laughs) this one just says message in all caps all it takes is one bullet to kill someone but like redacted lead character points out it takes a lot of planning (laughs) Is that Kill Shot? That is Kill Shot. 2008's Kill Shot. Perhaps the most anonymous movie on it John Madden's filmography. It took like three years to be released. And nobody saw it. Nobody. Yeah. Diane Lane, Mickey Rourke. Nothing. It might have been. Was it one of the ones that they took with them from Miramax to Weinstein Co.? Couldn't tell you. Very Doesn't possibly. matter. Doesn't matter. This All movie right. do- is gone. Next one. Lost to the ethos. First clue. Maybe for some audience, the court scene at the end. I love that they're like <laughs> like they're talking to somebody. Maybe for some audience, the court scene at the end. And everything that the protagonist is going through from the beginning till the end of the movie. That is comprehensive. That would be Miss Sloan. That's Miss Sloan. That warning was listed under frightening and intense scenes, which, okay. <laughs> Maybe for some audience. Maybe for some audiences, you freaking wusses. Um... The next ones are the only truly intense scene is the woman held at gunpoint and on the scene with the male prostitute, alcohol and smoking can be seen. True. Is it ever true? All right. Next one. A woman grips a man's neck with her legs, slightly paralyzing him. She then stabs him with a syringe, injecting him with a sedative. That's got to be the debt. That's the debt. Yeah. Next ones are a man falls down and dies. A shot reveals a syringe in his back, revealing he died from poisoning. I've never seen the debt, but that makes this movie sound hilarious. That makes this movie sound like (laughs) knives out, but like amongst Mossad. Like, it's very funny. Um, And then photos of brutally killed people are seen. They're in black and white. So blood, if there is any, is hard to see. All right. Next one. A character is shown in two sex scenes with different partners, fully clothed in both. In one scene, the woman is on top, thrusting violently and explicitly while panting heavily. Slow down, IMDb keywords. Uh, While no actual nudity, it is still quite explicit. The scene is quite lengthy, however. It is for more for comical effects. Oh. I know, they kind of killed your boner at the end of there, didn't they? I mean, it can't be the Marigold Hotels. I'm pretty sure, like, Judy Dench is not violently riding Bill Nye. No, you did not. Okay, yeah. 
Hopefully not. Uh, a comedic effect tells me it's Shakespeare in Love? It's Shakespeare in Love. The other two are, I'm the movie is in part about an adulterous affair, and a boy teases a cat with a live mouse held by the tail. We hear sounds implying that the mouse was fed to the cat. The character is presented as being obsessed with and attracted to bloody violence. Oh. All right. All right. Last one. <laughs> Your process of elimination may lead you here, but I want... I'll read the first couple, but like I excerpted a lot of these because the... The parental guidelines for this particular movie, I feel like, are kind of off the chain. All right, first one. A man dances and sings in an open shower in a hotel. A woman on a nearby balcony looks over and sees his bare chest, back, and buttocks briefly. That's got to be the first best exotic marigold. The first best exotic marigold hotel. Fun fact, there are no parental guidelines for the second best exotic marigold hotel. It is either a perfect movie or completely, like, passed by their radar. Unfrightening. Apparently. Okay. Maybe so, for some audiences, the second the nec- best exotic Marigold Hotel is not frightening at all. Maybe for some audiences. All right. The next one is a woman enters her boyfriend's dark hotel room, removes her bra and panty, uh, her bra and panties. We see them fall to the floor and we see her bare back, climbs into bed, screams and jumps up with a comforter around her as we see that she is in the wrong room and an older woman is in the bed. The older woman says, this is the most action I've had in a while. The woman's boyfriend enters the room followed by his mother and she accuses his girlfriend of prostitution and tells her to leave because the hotel is not a brothel. I got more information from that than I probably did from that scene in the movie. Is all Probably I'm got say. more information from that than you got from Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Probably. All right. Further ones, though, are really where the parental guidelines for the best exotic Marigold Hotel go off the chain. A gay man tells his friends of his sexual orientation how he had a short relationship with a man. Be fucking where. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. There's a gay man, an old gay man, talking about his past relationship with a man. His one relationship with a man. Fuck you, IMDb. That scene is beautiful. Um... Another one. I've never seen that movie. Really? Oh, I think you would like it, Chris. I'm I'm sure I would. Strongly recommending it. All right, next one. Many people shout at a woman who makes bigoted statements about blacks and Indians, which makes it sound like the bad thing is that people are shouting at the woman. Right. A. Not that she's racist. Right. Next one. <laughs> this is under the label of profanity, okay? References to retirees, senior citizens, divorced people, gold diggers, prostitutes, gays, Indians, blacks, and class differences. Retirees? Also, just like, we don't talk about any of those things. That is profanity in this household. Um, Calling someone a retiree is a slur? Is a slur, sir. Please refrain from that. And then the last one is, a woman and a woman agree that they remembered marijuana from college. They remembered it. Once again... Somebody please think of the children. Um, So, yeah, John Madden's... Some audiences might find that frightening. John Madden's filmography after Shakespeare in Love is a really sort of um, colorful history of somebody kind of circling the drain. Although, again, nothing gets a higher recommendation from me than the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Although, I do tend to chalk up the charms of that movie to screenwriter Ol Parker rather than madden himself maybe that's sort of me cherry picking the credit that i want to give to the movie but like if you watch mama mia here we go again which was also directed by old parker i think the the charm of that movie and the charm of best exotic marigold hotel dovetail so well together that like i don't think i'm wrong that makes sense 
and that's a high endorsement that I can follow behind with the Miracle yeah. of the Tale movies. However, yes. you know what the Mamma Mia movies have? What, Cher? That Captain Corelli does not have. Cher? No, Greek people playing Greeks. <laughs> Very true. That was a that was basically half of the Roger Ebert review was I wish they had Greeks playing Greek people. And he sort of like goes into this. 2000s era Ebert is very kind of funny and sort of um, he sort of goes into this like period. That was really great. But also he's just like he spins out like two full paragraphs of like if it were a real Italian person, he might have said this in this scene and a real Greek person might have said this in this scene. And he's kind of like refashioning the movie about like how authentic Mediterranean actors and actresses would have uh, done it, except it's a little bit stereotypical where he's just like, maybe this Italian woman would have slapped him in the face, like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, those, you know, famously tempestuous and fiery um, Greek women and Italian men. Um, <laughs> and then he just looks at what Nicolas Cage is doing. He's like, oh, he's fine. That's, that's right. That's correct. Nicolas Cage's Raj. accent was so widely derided and made fun of and rightly so truly it's beyond well like take all of the the jokes about the bees oh my god what is that wicker man yep. that everybody does no guys take fi- do some research find him saying i am captain corelli he literally his first line in the movie is him saying his own name right and it i was <laughs> no, I think his first line in the movie is when we see them marching through the town, right? And they turn, and he's like, Bella Bambina, two o'clock, and they all turn and, like, salute Penelope Cruz, and it's, like, the invention of catcalling, <laughs> like, whatever, 1940-whatever, and it's supposed to be very kind of romantic, and she's supposed to be very flattered, but just, like, all right, invading soldiers, just, like, fuck yeah. off with your, like, you know, catcalling this one particular Bella Bambina or whatever, and then playing her a weird song that yeah it was driving me crazy the mandolin score <laughs> is like five different notable movie scores melded yeah, into one and it truly I, is. it was like as soon as i was locking into my mind of what it was that i felt like this was copying it morphed into something else that i couldn't follow. like it's yeah it's certainly not going to make you fall in love with your oppressor. No, absolutely not. Um, so off of a $25 million domestic box office and $36 million overseas, um, or sorry, that's what it pulled in, and that was off of a $57 million budget, which, by the way, $57 million to make a movie like this, I think of it, I think of that now in, 20, or in 2020, and like it's deeply laughable. That anything would get that much money. Do you to... think a good chunk of it went to Nicolas Cage, though? Oh, probably. Almost certainly. And also, it's like, it's not cheap to shoot, you know, on location in those yeah. locations. But, like, I can't imagine. Like, best case scenario with Captain Corelli. Although, I mean, again, you're talking about coming off of Shakespeare in Love, where that movie did so well mm-hmm. and was such a thing. So, like, success begets, you know, visions of success in your head. But it's. It's also not just the Shakespeare in Love thing. It's also what this movie is. Like, you'd mentioned it up at the top, like, what this movie is kind of, like, chasing. It's chasing this old-fashioned type of thing that Mm -hmm. in, like, the 50s... Zorba the Greek, yeah. Yeah, it would have absolutely been in the Academy's wheelhouse. And I think there is an aspect of it that, like, John Madden does a 
decent job of doing of like chasing that kind of storytelling and movie making and like putting it on a grander scale. I don't disagree. I don't disagree at all. I think um, you're on the right track. Like that's probably the things that the movie does most successfully, if not like yeah. all that interesting to watch. Yeah, I think we've seen stories like this. I feel like, you know, every year there's a foreign language film nominee that is about conflicting loyalties in World War Two mm-hmm. or perhaps World War One. Um, there was the one a couple years ago about the guy who has to find all the landmines on the beach in, I want to say, Denmark. Do you remember that one? No. Land of Mine. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Good movie. But, like, it does feel like we get, like, one of those every year. Um, some of them good. Some of them Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which landed with a 28% Rotten Tomatoes and a 36 Metacritic. Like, that's – we talk about how those movie, those measures can be a little skewed, but, like, those numbers do kind of, like, speak for themselves. Uh, and just reading some of the reviews at the time, I excerpted a few quotes from the – from the almost uniformly negative reviews from the major critics. And I wanted to read them for you because they're kind of funny. Uh, Lisa, Lisa Schwartzbaum at entertainment weekly God, said, nobody would crack their knuckles right. Before I know panning the shit out of something like Lisa Schwartz. I was almost disappointed that, the, that the language she used wasn't more colorful because I was really expecting a doozy. Um, but she does say that the passion between Corelli and his Pelagia is indistinguishable from the affection the captain demonstrates for his mandolin, which is absolutely true. That's so true. So true. Um, Kenneth Turan at the Los Angeles Times was my favorite, though. He called it a phlegmatic, middle-brow romantic drama so stodgy that even the goats look bored. <laughs> the library is open and Kenneth Turan came to play. Uh, he also mentioned, he gave us a little bit of like historical context, which I did appreciate. He said, Cage displays a pronunciation so bizarre, it's already led to waggish comments about town about Captain Fonzarelli's mandolin. <laughs> I love it. Anytime a reviewer mentions the wags around town, I'm I'm addicted to that kind of, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood gossip. But Captain Fonzarelli's mandolin, that's a good piece of business. I like that a lot. Do you want to talk about the one nomination of note that it really got? Yeah. Sound Editors Guild. Man. Okay. They really liked it. It got a nomination from the Sound Editors Guild, but maybe not in the category that you're thinking of. They liked that mandolin. They liked that mandolin, but it was in the best sound editing. Sound editing, of course, is um, sound effects. Yeah. Within a musical. Add the sound or create the sound separately. Right. Best sound editing in a music musical feature film, which is funny that this was categorized as a musical because it is not. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nominees in that category. One of which Why? is a I don't know. I truly don't know. One of which is a movie called Lucky Break that was directed by Peter Catania, who directed The Full Monty, but none of us have heard of it, so I want to take that off of the table. There are five other nominees in this category. Wait, one, two, three, four. Yes, five. And I want you to guess them based on me describing the poster in words for you. All right? Okay, that's going to be helpful simply because if they're nominating Captain Corelli's Mandolin as a musical, I have fully no idea what else they're going to nominate. So I appreciate this. All right. So the winner 
The poster features a man and a woman uh, in an embrace, like making out. Moulin Rouge. Yes. <laughs> Moulin Rouge. Well I done. I was worried that Moulin Rouge wouldn't be there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's the winner. All right. Um, next one I want to give you is, sorry, as I'm opening up this poster. So it's a sort of like, it's a floating heads poster atop another shot of one of the two people among the floating heads sort of like doing a little dance move sort of like kicking her her foot up on like some kind of Uh, save the last dance yes very good is it that you remember what these posters look like or you just oh i remember what the yes okay well i had a moulin rouge poster i had a save the last dance soundtrack so i definitely like looked at that poster a lot because it's the same all right the next one is just one woman center of the poster looking sort of like smiling and looking off sort of over her shoulder and her hair is blowing in the wind it's glitter is it glitter it's glitter you are yes! frighteningly good at oh, this. Oh, congratulations, Glitter. You got something from Sound someone editing. calling you best. Sound editing nomination. All right, next one. There are three women in the back seat of a car, sort of like hugging each other, and they're very happy, and they're all dressed in sort of like gold tones. Mm-hmm. And in front of them is what appears is like a CD. With oh yeah, one of them's like holding it out for the camera. Like here's a CD with us on it, and no, this this is two thousand one. Josie and the Pussycats. Josie and the Pussycats. I remember that as being like later in my high school. Anyway, two thousand one. I got it right. Yeah, you got it right. Well done. Okay. All right, and the last one, um, it's a guy. In the center of the poster, he's sort of, like, superimposed over a shot of, like, adoring crowd at a concert with, like, the lights of a concert behind him. But he, in his shot, is, like, walking down a deserted road with his guitar slung over his shoulder and, like, a leather Uh, jacket. It. The tagline is, the story of a wannabe who got to be. Uh, rock star. Rock star, Yeah. Have you seen that piece of shit? I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, because you see Mark Wahlberg's butt in it, like in Tidy Whitey's. I don't know why I was very butt focused. I let's. This is a very butt centric episode. It truly you. is. Listen, in many ways, they're all very butt centric episodes for me, and I'm just keeping it under wraps. But yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you want to go behind the behind the music with this guy, uh, yeah. So yeah, ca- c- congratulations to the excellent company that Captain Corelli's mandolin was in with. Uh, with those films. And well done, Chris, guessing those by poster. That is not easy. Uh, that's probably going to be easier than any other type of like quiz you could give me. <laughs> um, so can we talk about the yeah. screenwriter for half a second? So it's a, it's an interesting curiosity. I only sort of note this because like I learned a thing last night while I was researching Captain Crowley's Mandolin. It was written by a woman named Sean Slovo, who's only written like a handful of screenplays in her career. She's a South African woman. She direct sure she wrote the script for that film Catch a Fire with Derek Luke and Tim Robbins, if you remember that, the one that kind of launched very Derek early Luke. Oscar buzz. Very early Oscar buzz. Did you ever see that movie? I did not. It's fine. 
it's sort of like the definition of like fine. But I remember at uh, there was a time when people were like expecting Derek Luke to like blow up, be the movie. be the thing, and like blow up with that. But she also wrote a film in 1988 called World Apart, which was directed by Chris Menges, the cinematographer Chris Menges, which is kind of interesting, um, starring among other people Barbara Hershey, and it was like a real kind of critical uh, festival sort of champion. It was, again, directed by Chris Menges. It won an acting prize and the grand jury prize at Cannes that year. It won... Chris Menges won Best Director at the New York Film Critics Circle that year. It won Best Screenplay for Sean Slovo at BAFTA. And I've never heard of it. And it's only from 1988, so, like, it's not that long ago. But it's fascinating to me that there are these movies that are... that have one path to being remembered, and that is the Oscar path, kind of, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. you are a critical hit, and you do well at Cannes, you do well at these sort of, like, un, you know, low-grade, not low, not like New York Film Critics Circle is low-grade, but, like, only a very sort of specific class of people sort of pay attention to that thing, right? I'm gonna and, look this up and see if this movie's available, too, because I've truly never heard of it, and it's, like, it's sad, it's one of these cases where it's sad that even sometimes these movies can be kind of truly lost. Yeah. It's set in South Africa. It is, again, as I said, starring Barbara Hershey, among others, and... But it's interesting to me that, like, if they if this movie doesn't hit Oscar, which in 1988 it didn't, Nobody remembers it. And that you wonder some of the, so you think of like some of the other movies from 1988 and like, is this the fate that befalls a movie like Gorillas in the Mist if Sigourney Weaver doesn't get a Best Actress nomination from mm-hmm. that? Is this what becomes of like The Accidental Tourist if Gina Davis doesn't win? Um, it's hard to get your hands on The Accidental Tourist. Right. That's what I mean. And all of a sudden, like, who's going to remember The Accidental Tourist other than the fact that like, that's why Gina Davis has an Oscar? I think it also was a Best Picture nominee that year. But like, it was. If a World misses... Apart, starring Barbara Hershey, is not streamable, but you can buy the DVD on Amazon for $27. There's oh. only one left in stock. It's a delicacy. It's a true delicacy. Um, tweet at us if you've seen A World Apart, the uh, the Barbara Hershey movie. We'd like to hear from you about that. Again, 1988 is just before my um, sort of consciousness about this kind of stuff. And, like, I don't want to be a millennial about it and just be like, nothing before the time that I was born ever existed. Um, but truly, I don't remember. Millennials. I am a young Gen X. No, um, you are technically speaking elder I will fight you. <laughs> um, Don't fall on the calendar, friend. We will have this argument later. <laughs> Off mic. We will have this you argument will when we get home. Stab me. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, 1988. Like, I remember sort of the big movies from 1988, but that was certainly well before the time when I was into things like you know, critical champs that didn't get, you know, that didn't get their due. So, but I think of movies sort of like that movie um, that Jennifer Jason Lee was in, uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Was that the... Um, the Based remember? on the Selby book? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that one, she won a bunch of critics prizes for it. And it seemed like she might have been on her way towards an Oscar nomination for it, that she was also in that movie Miami Blues. And now both of those movies, like real, like... Real a real cinephile cinephile will remember those, but like not really anybody else, right? Whereas if that's an Oscar nomination for her, then at least it falls under the rubric of like 
enemies a love story, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like nobody really remembers enemies a love or like people remember it, but like nobody really talks about a movie like that except under the guise of like, remember how Lena Olin got an Oscar nomination for Enemies a Love Story? So the movie that I always think of in this context, which I have never seen and for a while has been hard to also get a hold of, is Love Field. Ooh, that right, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer was nominated for. Granted, yes. like the problem with that movie is it was an Orion movie. Oh, again, what did I think I it's see? a movie that you can buy a hard copy of, but I don't. Yeah. If for at least for a while, it was not rentable maybe i should try to rent this movie and what did i just see in the theater that was an orion movie and i literally just like shit Uh, a brick as i'm sitting gretel and hansel gretel and hansel all of a sudden i'm just like i guess i haven't been paying attention to like industry biz or whatever but i had no idea that orion had like resurrected itself somebody actually owns them and they've put out smaller movies i'm pretty sure god's own country if i'm remembering correctly oh fascinating because you're sitting there in the theater, and all of a sudden that little, like, O sort of, like, starts sure. spinning. That, like, but cluster of stars starts spinning into an O. And I'm like, wait a fucking second. I know what this is. It's really weird on Gretel and Hansel because it's, like, it are, that movie already feels like some weird, like, mindful, intentional artifact <laughs> that you're like, are they trying to punk us with this? Right. Um, yeah, I'm going to look that up. They've had a few smaller releases. Yeah. While you do that, I want to sort of... Did you have anything else to say about Sean Slova or World Apart before I move on to the Oscars? No. Just tweet at us if you've seen it. Yeah, for real. So look up that, and while you do that, I want to sort of set the stage for um, some Oscar talk. Because obviously, if Captain Crowley's Mandolin is successful that year, the Oscar field that it's sort of like feeding into is probably three of the most interesting... Oscar races of the early 2000s, right? Where it's Absolutely. the best actor, it's the best actor category where Denzel Washington ends up winning for Training Day, which is a win that always fascinates me when I think about it because it seemed to happen so smoothly. And I think it was because of this like confluence of events where Russell Crowe had won the year before and he was no Tom Hanks. He was not likable enough that the Academy wanted to give him two in a row. So mm-hmm. he was almost like, in any other year, he would have won for that because he's the lead actor in the best picture front runner, ultimately the best picture winner, playing this like, you know, um, you know, mental imbalance, right? Where mm-hmm. he's it's very baity, it's very much like everything that Oscar voters are looking for. And in any other year, he would have like walked to a win. And because he had just won the year before, and people didn't really like him, he was a non not a non factor. He still probably finished second. When he threw the it phone. It was the year I think after it was during phone. campaigning, no? The phone was, was during the Gladiator year, which is kind of surprising that he still won for Gladiator. Yeah. Um, but there was also just, like, a whole bunch of, like, there was a lot of negative stuff that came out um, about A Beautiful Mind. Speaking of Harvey Weinstein, he was the one who sort of, like, planted all of this, like, or at least, like, A Beautiful surfaced. Mind is homophobic. A Beautiful Mind is homophobic. A Beautiful Mind is, uh, is a Nazi. He, like, John Forbes Nash was a Nazi. All of this kind of stuff. And... So Denzel Washington wins for Training Day because, A, because the competition wasn't there for him, but also it was this great narrative with Sidney Poitier was getting the honorary Oscar that year, and there was all this buzz for Halle Berry, and so... You could really argue that it is some carryover, as, like, carryover momentum, because before American Beauty, he was long thought to be the frontrunner for the hurricane. 
Right. That was the, yeah, he wins the Golden Globe for the hurricane. And again, because American Beauty is your best picture front runner and Kevin Spacey is such a sort of prominent cog in that film like he's he was Mm -hmm. so front and center in that film so he wins the oscar over denzel and so now denzel has this air of we owe him one even though he's already won an oscar for glory but he's never won a lead acting oscar right this is sort of that little phenomenon that i wanted to talk about a little bit with renee zellweger this year for judy but i didn't really get the opportunity which is like certain actors Certain A-list actors, if their only Oscar is a supporting actor Oscar, it still feels like they don't have one. I or think they're Kate treated Blanchett... like it's, you know, the supporting one isn't a recognition of what a movie star you are. Right. Which is, I think, why Kate Blanchett wins for Blue Jasmine without a whole lot of question. And it's a big part of why I think Renee Zellweger wins for Judy mm-hmm. where nobody was really just like, Oh, she already has one because the one she has is a supporting actress and she's a leading actress. Like Renee Zellweger is absolutely an A-list or leading actress. So I think the same was sort of felt about Denzel Washington was just like it, the supporting actor Oscar that he has does not befit his stature as one of the top, you know, two or three leading men in Hollywood right now. And so and most he wins stars. And it's like right. the, what he won for does not feel representative of his career. All and that. he ends right. And so he ultimately then ends up winning for kind of an unusual role in training day. Not only is he a villain, but he's like such a, I don't know. It's such a like. It's not the. It's not even the kind of villain that tends to win. Like a, a yeah, Javier he's like Bardem. a Hannibal Lecter with a cobra, but like a some type of like vicious like attack creature. Like he has all of these catchphrases that came out right. of that movie. But he's very much like of the world. Whereas like Hannibal Lecter or um or Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem's character from No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. both feel in some way sort of descended from the Mount Olympus of, like, acting roles, right? They play these sort of just, like, they're grandiose and they, you know, they're smarter than everybody and they have this sort of, like, almost supernatural appeal to them, whereas, Mm -hmm. like, Alonzo in Training Day... further into the genre territory as well. Right. by, like, like, nature of what those characters are. Right. And, like, Alonzo in Training Day is yelling around about how King Kong don't have shit on him, but, like, he's still very much just, like, a street-level... Um, sort of like drug lord kind of guy, right? Anyway. But it was also a different type of role than Denzel Washington had played. Absolutely. Or at least yeah. we talked about it that way at the time. And like that kind of fueled that momentum, I think, that he was being this great, but also still surprising people. I think that's right. And then so Best Actress that year, which is where Penelope Cruz would have tried to have found her sort of niche in, I'm not sure where that comes either, because that's Halle Berry wins for Monsters Ball. We all remember that moment. Vivica A. Fox getting thanked from the Oscar stage. We all love it. Um, Renee Zellweger's nominated for Bridget Jones's Diary, speaking of, you know, Miramax's triumph in that regard. Sissy Spacek, another Miramax actress for In the Bedroom, whose buzz had been building since Sundance, and she was kind of the front runner up until Halle Berry kind of overtook her. And it's so... I always think of that so funny, where it's like... Sissy Spacek, she's she wins the Globe. She's the front runner, and then ultimately Halle Berry overtakes her. And Sissy Spacek, whenever she like lost any of those subsequent awards, seemed so fine with it. Yeah, where she was just sort of just like, I've got one of these. You know what I mean? You go. Yeah. 
She was just, like, happy to be welcomed back to the stage. Yeah. Wasn't this the year... uh, This was the year that they did full AFI awards? Oh, was it? For a few years, because I think I remember Sissy Spacek winning. Like, televised? Actress, too. I forget if they were televised. Um, Yeah. Rest in peace, AFI awards. Yeah. So, Hallie... Yeah, Hallie's uh, sort of comeback... Or, uh underdog story sort of begins at SAG that year because she won the SAG and that's when everybody was like huh maybe she could win other nominees that year Nicole Kidman and Moulin Rouge I did a whole thing at Vulture this year about what if Nicole Kidman had won for Moulin Rouge and how different would the timeline have been spoiler alert it went some places um Frankie <laughs> and Alice was involved as was as were multiple best original song wins for Beyonce it was a whole thing um, and then Judy Dench for Iris, which like seems like it might be, you know, you always think like these these Judy Dench roles, just like ah, you could you know get rid of that one, and yet you were pulling that Oscar nomination out of Judy's cold dead hands. It really felt like for a while there that the Oscars just like had to nominate Judy for whatever she was in, and she's wonderful in Iris. So it was a little bit like the sense of what the <clears throat> surprise could be is which one is Nicole Kidman getting nominated for. Yes, and most people thought that because she was getting votes for Moulin Rouge and votes for the others, that, that she would she cancel. Yeah, yeah, she would essentially steal from her own votes and split her vote, and she wouldn't get a nomination. I do you remember who was being predicted in her stead? Was it Tilda and Tilda Swinton in The Deep End? Maybe because that was a Searchlight movie. Yeah. I'm trying to remember because there was definitely there were some people doubt. predicting uh, foolishly Jennifer Connelly for lead. Yeah, because wasn't she a lead at SAG mm-hmm. that year? I hate when SAG does that. It really like, especially like sometimes know, it's it like gums a up the clerical works. error. But that I think, yeah, was an actual thing if I remember yeah. correctly. No, I think that's right. Um, who was the clerical error this year? Kathy Bates. Yeah, that's so strange. Chris, do you want to talk about the best director field that year, which I think is one of the most fascinating, if not like the most fascinating best director field? Because in... we have two lone directors this year in 2001. Uh, yeah, and this would one. have been, uh, yeah, just like this would have been where, you know, John Madden at the sort of high point of his Oscar buzziness as a director, at least mm-hmm. before anybody saw Captain Corelli, this would have been the field he would have tried to get in, and it's really an interesting year. Uh, well, Ron Howard wins for A Beautiful Mind. Peter Jackson's nominated for The First Lord of the Rings. Robert Altman for Gosford Park, which we thought if there could be any surprise, it would probably be Robert Altman taking over, because I think people forget how beloved that movie was. Um, oh, yeah. And, and he won Altman the Globe, did, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. He also didn't have a competitive win. I don't think he'd... His... His lifetime achievement wouldn't come for a couple more years. But then the two lone director nominations are David Lynch for Mulholland Drive. It's the only nomination that movie gets. And then Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down, the year after his movie wins Best Picture, but he doesn't win Best Director, which is fascinating. But Black Hawk Down, you could very easily imagine probably being sixth place this year because it gets a good number of craft nominations. Yeah. Black Hawk Down's buzz seemed to have come a little bit later, or perhaps I'm yeah. remembering that, like, I kind of discounted it for a while. 
I think people did, but I do also think the movie arrived late because in 2001, he also had Hannibal. Shout out to our Hannibal Right, episode. in February. Um, yeah. So I think they, that movie was just a very, very late arrival and probably yeah. – if it had another week could have been a best picture nominee and it had no acting contenders. And sometimes those movies, it's hard to tell in the run up how strong a contender those movies are, especially if you're not like a SAG ensemble nominee or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, David, I Lynch, mean, I'm fine with it because uh, some people might say that would mean we don't have in, in the bedroom as a best picture nominee. I actually think it would be Moulin Rouge that probably wouldn't have gotten the best picture. Nomination. Well, okay, let's that let's tease that out. Let's do we you know, our one of our favorite pastimes, which is what if there were 10 nominees this year? So All right. 2001. The five, 2001, the five best picture nominees are A Beautiful Mind, Gosford Park in the Bedroom, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring and Moulin Rouge. I think it's safe to slot in then Black Hawk Down and Mulholland Drive. I would not slot in Mulholland Drive. See, I feel like Mulholland Drive is probably in sixth place on a lot of these. I know that its only nomination was Lynch for director, which is a real strange curiosity. If it had a or a score nomination, or if Naomi Watts had gotten in, Naomi Watts probably might have been sixth for Best Actress, actually. I think it was probably sixth in a lot of those categories. I feel like that was a movie where, because it debuted at Cannes, right? Yes. And it was, like, so strongly a critical champ. And you can tell that there's a little bit of, like, Oscar pushback of people being like, well, I didn't understand it. But I still feel like if you had a 10, you would have enough people to push it ahead. But let's look at who the other contenders might be and see where the competition might be coming uh, from. I think Shrek would have been a nominee. <laughs> oh, boy. What a I don't think you're wrong, but like what a what a life we would be leading. <laughs> I think Amelie is probably a very Amelie, strong contender yeah. that year. So, so that's, already that's three that we are pretty solid on. Yeah. Memento, maybe? Uh, Or Monster's Ball, maybe more likely. Maybe, because Monster's Ball also got the screenplay nomination. I wonder about Ali, because Ali was so heavily hyped. Although Ali, again, Ali doesn't really show up outside of its two acting nominees, and that sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. portends... What about Monster's Inc.? Do you think to animated movies could have been nominated no although it's weird it's interesting monsters inc with four nominations monsters but was like beloved and very well reviewed but i don't think people took it as seriously probably because it came after shrek and shrek was like for whatever reason considered this revolution and but like monsters inc never really got the type of consideration a lot of other pixar movies have here's one that got was getting best picture buzz for a while and a lot of people, including me, were sort of like very skeptical of that buzz, and ultimately it didn't happen, is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I was about to bring that up because I don't think that would have been a thing. I don't either. But I I know that there were definitely people at the time... Had several nominations this year. ...who were like, it's such a, such a success. I'm almost certain it ended up on the Producers Guild... Uh, yeah. ...on some Producers Guild list or some sort of like top tens... Producers I definitely Guild. think that nine or ten or maybe both definitely is coming from the acting field, whether it's Training Day or Monsters Ball mm. or Ali. So we're saying the additional five are Shrek, Amelie, Black Hawk Down, probably Monsters Ball, 
and you are saying something like Ali or Training Day, and I am saying Mulholland Drive or Memento. Right? Is that uh, fair? I think I would say 10th is Mulholland Drive, then. I will concede that, maybe. Thank you. Thank A you. Best Picture and just... Being nominated just for Best Picture and Best Director seems very strange to me, even in the year of a 10. The thing about Memento, though, it does it not only gets a screenplay nomination, it also got an editing nomination. Now, part of that is that editing is its most sort of flashy Yeah, um, like that's thing. the movie. But you look at something like Ford versus Ferrari, and like essentially it got a Best Picture nomination on the back of it's awesome sound and editing. Like it is, as I mentioned in my vulture thing, it is essentially vroom, vroom, the movie where it's just like vroom, vroom cars, vroom, vroom goes things vroom, are vroom. F- fast and, and loud and whatever. And, and then the wife roll cracking that oh, lawn chair boy. and sitting in it. Blech. Oh boy, that movie. that movie. Yes. All right. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. Um, 2001 Oscars are really interesting to delve into, not least of which because this is the sort of campaign that's happening in, like, the wake of 9-11. Um, you know, America is sort of, Tom you know, Cruise opening dazed. the thing right. saying we need movies now more than ever. It's one of... It's so underrated, the hosting job that Whoopi Goldberg does with that Oscars, because A, mm-hmm. it comes, it just carries off so well, but also... It's so long. People talk about like long Oscar ceremonies, and you know I love them. This, this is like, like the four most and a half. gloriously long Oscars. Yeah, it's just like it's in, it's incredibly lengthy, and like it takes its time, and it has a ton of montages, but they're all really good, and it really takes its time with Sidney Poitier, and it really like just sort of allows its moments to happen and to linger. And the one thing that kills me is that all of this happens. And the film that we're coronating on this Oscars that I all that I love in almost every other respect is A Beautiful Mind, which is probably my choice for like the worst film to ever win Best Picture. I need to rewatch it just to be able to back up your claim on this because I have Please do. absolutely, I utterly no memory of it. Yeah. I mean, I would probably at least off of like just what I remember feeling about this movie agreeing that it is probably the worst of the Best Picture nominees, even saying that as someone who does not like Lord of the Rings. You don't like it? Oh, I thought you were just sort of, like, agnostic to it. You actively no, don't like I, it. No, I especially Fellowship of the Ring don't like it. Wow. Um, Go get them, kids. Yeah. <laughs> come come yell at me. I don't... I, I'm unimpressed. Sorry. Okay. I have no emotional connection to it whatsoever. Wow. Um, Wow. I guess maybe I that's my holdout it. is like I don't feel anything watching it. Yeah. Um, no, I hear I hear you. Um This but was anyway. the Oscar year because like I the I freaked out about Moulin Rouge this year. I still love that movie. It's of like course. maybe I have gotten too old for it a little bit that I'm like this is it's I understand why as a teenager I freaked out so much but like I I do need a nap after watching that movie. You were a um, teenager obsessed with consumption. I get it. <laughs> I was a teenager who was obsessed with like a wide range of like musical eras and different brands of pop music and I loved musicals and musicals were dead also this year in musicals we had Hedwig and the Angry Inch it always gets buried behind Moulin Rouge in Chicago but it was there it's true Moulin Rouge I feel like I write so many, like, I write so many um, 
uh, get out of jail free cards for Moulin Rouge. Not that it's a bad movie at all, but like it does indulge itself in a whole lot of things that in any other movie I would be like, get fucking over yourself. But in this movie, you I'm just like, you also have to yes, remember it, it, like, of the time, like, seeing that movie in the summer of 2001 felt completely different than watching it now. It felt very revolutionary. It felt yeah. like so something we hadn't seen before. Well, and, and this now was it's pre-Chicago, like, so calm down. Yeah, yeah. The 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 musical aspect of it was like even more audacious at the time. Yeah, two thousand one. Profane. People talk about nineteen ninety nine a lot in terms of, you know, what a great year for movies it was, and how many sort of like you know revolutionary whatever that it you know that roster runs deep, and that's all true. But like, I think you could say that about two thousand one as well, where. Mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge, Mulholland Drive, Memento, Lord of the Rings, even though you don't like it. Royal Tenenbaums um, in the Royal bedroom. Tenenbaums was that year. Monsters, Inc. was that year. Um, there's just a whole lot of stuff. Even stuff like like Waking Life, Richard Linkletter's Waking Life, I think is so kind of fascinating. But I think also you look into like movies that didn't really make a dent in Oscar that year. The Man Who Wasn't There by the Coens, I think, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Devil's Backbone, Guillermo del Toro is that year. Ocean's Eleven. Wet Hot American Summer, art like AI artificial intelligence, which is one of those movies. That, I like, love that movie. Even if you don't like it, it's a fascinating movie to dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that movie Session Nine that like not yeah. like an Oscar movie, but like I fucking love Session Nine. Brad Brooke Anderson Smith in that movie is awesome. This is the year of no, Hedwig. We're th- I'm thinking of Series Seven. You're thinking of Series I always, 7. I always conflate Session 9 and Series 7. But do you know the movie I'm talking about with Session 9 with yes, the yes, Insane yes. Asylum or it's whatever? Very movie, creepy movie. Yeah. It's a horror movie. But, like, this is the year of Hedwig. This is the year of Brian Cox and L.I.E. This is... Which um, I've never seen. Did I, I mention Donnie Darko? Which is a movie that, like, his its reputation has sort of, like, taken a roller coaster ride. But, like, it is undeniably influential and undeniably a movie that, you know was has part of the impact. fabric of that year. One of year, my biggest hugely. brags, which like now doesn't feel like a brag because like people are over it with that movie, but like I actually saw Donnie Darko in theaters before like it I love that for you. Oh, I love that for you. That's fantastic. Um other movies that year uh Heist, that David yeah, Mamet's movie Heist too. is like such a like that's a perfect movie that like the kind of movies that people talk about in 1999 where it's just like it's just a perfect like 26th best movie of the year you know what i mean where it's mm-hmm. just like that it just shows you how deep that goes we mentioned the others um the others would be in my top 10 this year uh amazing absolutely harry potter debuts this year it like changes the full landscape of you know of the movie industry it's just i when we talk about I don't know. I don't know why people don't bring up 2001 when we talk about great movie years. I think because 99 had like created this sort of reputation for itself, Mm -hmm. you know, so well. I think, and this will help like bring it back to like Captain Corelli's mandolin before we head out. But like, I do think that September 11th did have an impact on movie going and like discussing movies too, because like, uh, Captain Corelli's Mandolin opened shortly before September 11th, and like that's probably partly why you know it didn't have any long legs at the box office because eh. like once September 11th happened, people didn't go to the movies for months. Um, it, it does feel a little generous to to give that. No, I wouldn't say like it. It, it, it the movie bombed, but like yeah, this was no. There was no possibility longer. Right. Also, yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's a different era for that. 
Like yeah. movies are in and out of theaters within a month or two months now. Yeah. Um, but not not that was not the case twenty years ago. Right. Um, so it's like we had this whole chunk of time where people weren't seeing movies, weren't talking about movies, and it's like it impacted mm-hmm. the Oscar ceremony and like the way that we were celebrating it. Like, I don't know. Like, it's only pretty much Moulin Rouge for things that happened before September 11th in this yeah. Oscar ceremony. That's probably true. It's very strange to me that post 9-11, A Beautiful Mind won. For all of the reasons you said, but, like, that specifically is very strange to me. Because, like, I'm very surprised that it wasn't something like The Lord of the Rings. Just for, like, what the feeling of the moment was like. But A Beautiful Mind was able to sell its movie as a love story. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think people, I mean, you know, not to be, it's very kind of stereotypical to say, but like people look to that kind of a thing for comfort and as wonderful as the Fellowship of the Ring was and how, you know, great it was at sort of establishing this franchise and it was not necessarily, it's not a, you know, it's not a difficult movie to watch. It's not like, I'm like, you know, scar your soul or anything like that. It's the boring one. Oh, stop it. Um, (laughs) But, like, A Beautiful Mind, like, it wants you to sort of, like, be uplifted by this story of, like, love conquering schizophrenia and whatever. And, like... Nazism. As bullshitty as I find the movie to be, if you buy into that, then, like, you're walking on a cloud, kind of, in terms of just, like, the good feeling of that movie. So I kind of get it. I do get it why that was sort of the the number one movie. But like again, just because of how strong a year I think that is, any other movie nominated for best picture, I would have thought would have been a perfect movie to define that year of, you know, great filmmaking and ultimately we get like the one that I find unacceptable, which like go figure. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> We didn't say anything about In the Bedroom, and I just want to say that's a movie I, adore. I fucking love. Incredible. Incredible. very recently rewatched that movie, and I think it's I, even better than I remembered it. I remembered it as being sort of a great sundancey, sort of like, you know, low-budget, modest kind of a, you know, dark family movie. It's It's got the goods, that film. It's, it truly does. It's the, that movie is the business. It is, yep. if not for Moulin Rouge being my number one with a bullet movie. Yeah. I mean, maybe Mulholland Drive too, but like in the bedroom, this is, this is back to your point of 2001 being so good, but like in the bedroom, if you guys haven't checked out that movie or haven't watched it in a while, you need to watch that movie. It's phenomenal. Truly phenomenal. I think both Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson deserved at the very, like their nominations were fully deserved. They probably both deserve to win. I definitely think that Tom Wilkinson, because it was pretty much just Sissy Spacek winning things that season, I would have liked to have seen him win something, you know, because, like, it made it seem like she was the towering performance of that movie. And, like, granted, he's doing a lot quieter things, but, like, it's so much of a tandem, like, two performances that bounce off of each other and what the tensions are. Marissa Tomei is also incredible. The tensions in that movie, the fact that... Sissy Spacek's character never lets up on Marissa Tomei's character. I mean, you never get a scene where she, like, 
calms down with her, right? Where she, you never get a scene where, like, that guard goes down. Like, she's pissed at her from minute one till the end of that movie. And, like, I love the convictions of a movie like that. Mm-hmm. They have a kitchen scene early in the movie uh-huh. where, like, Sissy Spacek is not playing nice to her, but, like, for right. whatever reason, she is doing absolutely nothing wrong. But, like, you can tell that even though she is being absolutely nice yep. and she is not putting on any, like, air that she is being nice with yep. intention to this woman, you can tell she despises her. Also, I have never in my life since seeing that movie carried a stack of dinner plates without having the thought of like (laughs) how fucking badass would it be to just slam this entire stack of plates down and just like scream my rage out into the world what a great that was that was so much the sissy spacek clip scene that i almost feel like it undersold how great she is throughout the movie because it made it look like it's just her in this one fantastic scene where, you know, yeah. she says everything and she she smashes the plates. Not to spoil the ending, but, like, her last line is such, like, a non-line, but, like, just When they're seeing... both in bed? No. When she's smoking in bed. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, she just, like, communicates everything by just yeah. sitting there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's incredible. Uh, see it. See in the bedroom if you haven't. It's wonderful. Um, anything else before we fall into the IMDb game? Um, Captain Corelli's mandolin. How do we sum it up? We sum it up by playing you oh, an acoustic God. set. <laughs> I just... This is for the Germanotas. I just want it to be like, <laughs> what does the Germanotta family feel about Nicolas Cage's? Because I'm sure the this whole This was Coppola their origin family, story. The Coppola family has disowned him for this. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Can you imagine Nicolas Cage yeah, coming back to like going? to like family Thanksgiving or Christmas that year and just being like, "Hey, family," and then being like, "What the fuck have you done to the good name of Italian American cinema?" That you know. Anyway, I'd like to think that he didn't have to learn the mandolin for this movie. No, Cage, among his many other unknown gifts, just already knew how to play the mandolin, and that's how he got this job. I want to go through. I want to go through my notebook in case I have any notes that uh, that I made that we haven't discussed yet. Um, her name is such like again. I talk about like names being very novel friendly. Yes. And Pelagia Ianis is like, you know, again, it's a Greek name, so like whatever. We'll, you know, give it a pass. Um, Christian Bale, I have his butt is so flat in like capital letters. <laughs> oh, here's one. What about a movie where Penelope Cruz and Captain Corelli's mandolin and Nicole Kidman in Cold Mountain just write letters back and forth to each other? <laughs> and they like bypass the like soldiers in war that they're really writing to and they just like end up writing to each other. And it's like that Sandra Bullock, Keanu Reeves movie with the magical mailbox where they just like they keep getting letters from each other. Anyway. I more so imagine, if we're going back to Cold Mountain, I imagine Renee Zellweger's Ruby Thews on this Greek island asking Penelope Cruz, you never wrapped your legs around this Corelli? <laughs> but it shit, it never starts raining in, in Greece. It's only, it's only earthquakes. Yeah. Um, the one line that Penelope Cruz that I did write down was when she goes, with your pasta and your panettone and your puffed up opera, I'm just like... <laughs> Score one for alliteration, Penelope. I love it. I really love it. I'll take a pan of Tony. Yeah, for real. Um, 
I just love like the scene where like it's the car full of Italian soldiers and they're just sort of like singing at every woman they pass. And I get that like soldiers aren't always these like grim sort of like, you know, 1917 vision of just like we're all going to die and we know it. But like they this movie depicts Italian soldiers in World War Two like they're the is it the Jets that are the Italians in a little bit like. I kind of thought that was interesting about the movie that it's like this is the this is a battalion that was sent to this peaceful island that they know they're not going to have to have a hostile takeover of. Did they so just they like collect kind of all the, the like non-agros? Was just like you're a soft boy, like you go sing to, you know, these Greek people. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I also wrote down at one point a defiant tango, which I think I remember what scene we're talking about where where um, Penelope Cruz dances with the other guy and, like, makes Nicolas Cage jealous or whatever. Whatever. This movie. I did not buy that romance for a second. I think that's the fatal flaw of this movie. You really have to, in order to be this ridiculous, you need to have a real magical connection of romance at the at the center of it, and this movie doesn't have it. And I mean, you maybe could have. Again, I would defend Penelope Cruz in this movie. I think her I would too. is good and fine. Yeah. But, like, when Takes she is tangle, opposite literally. a buffoon, it makes yeah. it even more ridiculous when it's yeah. like, this is the man colonizing her island, and yeah. she's going to fall in love with him. Like... Yeah, know. again, you have to work really hard to make that work. I'm not saying that couldn't work, but like you have you got to do the work and this movie isn't able to get there. I like Penelope Cruz. I like John Hurt as an actor. I don't like begrudge him in this movie. I don't know if he like <laughs> It's a little absurd, but like he's sure. good. And Irene Pappas, as I mentioned, is wonderful, but like there are only so many scenes you can have of her and Penelope Cruz, you know, picking lice out of <laughs> Christian Bale's back and we don't need it. Have I grossed you out? Have I disgusted you? No. I... <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you ready for the IMDb game? I am ready for the IMDb game. Tell the uh, children! Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles released years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. <laughs> that is right. the IMDb game. All right, my Bella Throwing Bambino. Throwing several pizzas in the air. <laughs> Pizza pasta. Pumpkin pie. Pizza um, pasta panettone puttanesca. <laughs> it's me, Marissa Tomei. All right. Um, <laughs> would you like to give to me or guess first? Uh, how about I guess first? I would like to guess. All right. So um, I managed to wrestle you down into admitting that Mulholland Drive probably would have gotten a nomination in 2010 if there were 10 Best Picture nominees. One of the stars of Mulholland Drive, people sort of forget because Naomi Watts is so sort of dynamic in that movie, but that was, I'm pretty sure, the first time I had seen Justin Theroux in anything. And thus, I am going to give you Justin Theroux to guess for his IMDb game. Theroux, Theroux, I'm not sure. I used to say Theroux because I thought that's how the author... Paul Theroux, the guy who wrote Mosquito Coast, uh-huh. pronounced his name, as opposed to like Henry David Thoreau, which is spelled differently. But apparently, everybody has overruled me, and it's just Justin Thoreau. So let's just do it that way. Justin Thoreau. This is the girl. Justin Thoreau. <laughs> what is this is the girl? That's the quote from Mulholland Drive. Oh, like, yes. Like, this is the girl. 
Him saying it, yes. I thought you were referring to him as the girl. Um. Okay, so the television, yes or no? No television, no voiceover. Wow. Okay. Um, Mulholland Drive? Yes, correct. Okay. Um, this is... He's... <sighs> trying to even think of what he is in i i can only think of tv right now um what tv are you thinking besides the leftovers besides the leftovers yeah i guess i'm just thinking of the just leftovers, of leftovers yeah. all of the all of the gifs of the leftovers are. i will know. allow you to guess the leftovers penalty free just to get it out of your mind so just <laughs> the leftovers and like put it let it free let it oh out into oh, the world. oh 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 um uh uh, oh, I lost it. Ah. He, uh, what's the? He plays a hippie in something. He does. Wow, this is gonna be bad. It's um, not that though. Um, what does he play a hippie in? Hold on, let me look. Is it Wanderlust? It's Wanderlust. You're thinking of Wanderlust. Sure, that's yeah. Jennifer Aniston. Yes, for my lover. Sure, Wanderlust. No, wrong. Okay. Once. Um, <laughs> I I I have something on my brain where he's a villain. What is it? Is a villain in? Um, uh, go with that, maybe. Follow that path down. Is it? Talk it out. Uh, uh, he's in the Charlie's Angels sequel, uh, Full Throttle. Yes, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. You have two. Yes. Okay. Um, is it one of these two he's got a major role in one of them is a minor role okay I know I'm giving you hints before you've reached a hint stage yeah I know this is a this is a if you feel like burning one to get years I wouldn't Um, blame you See, like, he doesn't do all that much. A major role, though. What has he been in a major role? I mean, major as in, like, he's not the lead of the movie, but like, within right. the movie, he, he's, he's a very like important role. Yeah. One of the top three or four people in it, probably. Exactly, yes. Oh, my God. Um, We did a whole ass episode on this. The Girl on the Train. Exactly. The Girl on the Train. Well done. That was not the villain I was thinking of. Yeah. Um. Well, you got two of them because he's the villain also in Charlie's Angels Full Throw. Well, that was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, Justin Theroux in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, when he emerges in that like fiery whatever, that tableau with him, and he's so muscled up and fucking hunky. And all I had really known him from was like the skinny pissant director in Mulholland Drive. It was quite <laughs> a moment, truly for all. A moment most meaningful to you. Most meaningful to oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just thought of, like, the campy type of thing that I was thinking of. I know it's not on there, but I have to guess it. What? He is, iconically, in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. He's the one that makes out with Janine Garofalo. Is he the cowboy? He's the cowboy. Who makes out with Janine Garofalo. Says, you're you totally right. sheep or your sister or yourself? Yes. It's not that. You're right about the, your 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 oh, intuition no. was correct. But, yes, he is in that movie. Dang. All right, that's too wrong. Give me my year. Your year is 2000. Put me out of my misery. Okay. So, so before Mulholland Drive. 
It's a movie that I mentioned in passing just in this conversation today, but like we've mentioned a lot of movies, so that might drive you crazy. Um, He's not a major role in this movie, but his anonymity is part of, is like intentional, if that makes any sense. Okay. His sort of forgettableness in this movie is intentional. It's sort of like, that's the point. So he is he like one of many, and that's why he fades away? Uh-huh. We've mentioned it in passing. It, mm, if it's pre-Mulholland Drive, he's not going to be, like, buff. No. But somebody in this movie is. A buff somebody. Is it a superhero movie? 2000? No. It is absolutely a person we've talked about kind of a lot in this episode. Penelope Cruz? No. Nicolas Cage? No. Christian Bale? Maybe. Oh. American Psycho. American Psycho. It makes sense that he's in American Psycho. I don't remember him in American Psycho. He's one of the ones who looks exactly like Jared Leto, who looks exactly like Josh Lucas, all of the, like, sort of you know, suits, sort of empty suits that he's all friends with. Sure. Yes. Dang. Way to stump me. Yeah. Yeah. Finally. Right. I finally got gotcha. you. <laughs> well, hopefully <laughs> I, w- I too will get you. Okay. Because for you, we have mentioned that Captain Corelli is part of the Mario Brothers extended universe. <laughs> he is a plumber. Um, so I chose not... Mario, but Luigi. Mario, Mario. I chose yeah. Luigi Mario for Luigi you. Mario. Yeah, John Leguizamo. Well, I have to start with Moulin Rouge because we've been talking about it so yes, much. Yes, Moulin Rouge. Um, how no about voiceover, no television? I will say. Okay, thank you. Um, how about his Golden Globe nominee nominated role in Tu Wong Fu? Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Homophobia is alive and well. Tu Wong no. Fu is not on his known for. That is. Horse crap. That should be an Oscar-nominated performance. Especially if the next film that I guess is on there, it's even more infuriating, is The Happening on there. No. Okay. <laughs> yes, I have stumped you as well. <laughs> the Happening's a nightmare. Um, What a terrible Yeah, but I wouldn't have been surprised to have seen it on there, because Shyamalan's movies are pretty popular in this game. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, the Happening isn't, though, right? Unless No. Betty Buckley? No, it's usually um, Signs or The Village or something like that. Right, 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 right. Um, all right, so you're getting your years for John Leguizamo. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you have 1996 and two movies in 1997. Oh, boy. 1996, 1997, Leguizamo. Um, is one of them the movie where he plays the villain that's like, all like big blue Violet Beauregard looking blueberry guy. Do you know what movie I'm talking about? <laughs> Can you give me a little bit more on the movie? It's like a superhero. It's like uh, I think it's like Michael Jai White plays this the the superhero, but it's um. Can fuck. you give me the name because I love this movie? And it's I not love this character. It's not the Phantom, but it's like. It's Spawn. Spawn, yes. Spawn fucking rules. Do I get partial credit for that, for not knowing the title? Uh, Well, I mean, you already got your hints, but yes, you you got that. You knew what the role was. Um, Okay. There's going to be a new Spawn. 
I hope it's weird. Uh-huh. Love it. Spawn is, of course, the heterosexual antecedent to the cell, simply because there is weird, scary characters and giant capes. Can we get weird gays to love Spawn? Sure. If here's there are a- any weird gays that love Spawn out there, um, here's the this had Oscar buzz challenge is. Anybody who self-identifies as a weird gay who loves the cell, find Spawn from 1996, is it? Or is that 97? Uh, It's 97. From 1997, find, like, where it's streaming or you can rent it or whatever, watch Spawn, and then tweet at us what you think. And whether you, as a weird gay who loves the cell, also can be a weird gay who loves Spawn. You know what? I am a weird gay who loves the cell. You know who is a weird straight that loves Spawn? My Who? brother. That's how I love Spawn so much. Like, my ah. brother had, like, the Todd McFarlane Spawn action figures. He read the comic book. Like, nice. we were hype for this movie. So this Spawn is going to be our first ever This Had Oscar Buzz Weird Gay Challenge. So tweet at us. Watch Spawn Weird Gay Challenge 2020. All right. Anyway, that was me All stalling. All right. Back to That was me stalling. And... You have right. 1996 and 1997 still for John Leguizamo. Oh, <laughs> Your movies oh. that you have correctly guessed are Moulin Rouge and Spawn. <laughs> are, are, is one of these movies a movie that's been discussed a lot this week on Twitter? Uh, perhaps. A movie okay. that I cannot believe people are so ready to forget. That people don't believe that Leonardo DiCaprio was a full fucking movie star after this movie is teenager erasure like i don't know what's happening it but is like, puberty erasure it's this movie spawned <laughs> so many people to hit puberty the second that the movie dropped i fully maintain that the scene in this movie where leonardo dicaprio and claire danes meet eyes through a fish tank while desri is singing beautifully in the background is one of the greatest and i'm sure it's like there's some sort of, like, allusion to an old movie, so, like, I'm going to sound stupid when I say it's one of the greatest movie scenes ever filmed, but it's one of the greatest movie scenes ever filmed, at least of my lifetime. It's so good. It's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Thank you for the plus. It's important. I would it, have immediately left if you had said and. It's it is plus. plus. It is plus. Okay. So now we need... So that was the 96 movie. So we need another 97. 1997. That isn't Spawn. It is not Spawn. <sighs> is it another movie where he's like an antagonist? Um, Debatable. He is a Stinkers Bad Movie Award nominee for Worst Actor for this. Oh, no. Stinkers. And this isn't one of those, like, his Broadway one-man show was brought to HBO or whatever. Because that would have been TV, I guess, right? No. I do believe, I'm being glib here, he is the protagonist, the person you root for, but I'm sure it's also that he's obnoxious. Oh. There had to have been a movie where, like, because John Leguizamo, when he sort of, like, broke through, he was, like, going to be, like, a thing. And usually, I'm, there's something where it's... definitely not a movie that anybody was like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be huge from this. Oh, okay. So, all right. So, I guess I'm maybe thinking of something. Because I, I was thinking of just, like, that kind of thing where, like, somebody is, like, a new talent on the scene. So, we're going to, like, let him sort of, like, let it all hang out. All his sort of, like, thing, like... 
whatever his vibe is, we're just going to let him go like a hundred to that vibe in this movie. But I guess it's not Yes, but like this is definitely a known like turd movie. Turd movie. I'm pretty sure this played on early era Comedy Central. Like remember when like Comedy Central would be like Clue and then here's a bunch of terrible movies. (laughs) Like, um... Uh, Dead Man on Campus and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, Real Genius. Okay. Is that the name <sighs> of that movie? The yes, the, the Val Kilmer movie where the poster is a cow. Uh, yeah, it's a, a Top Secret you're talking about. Top Secret. No, no. Real Genius. I think. With the genius. No, Real Genius is. I think, but I think you're conflating because Real Genius is definitely a Val Kilmer movie, but Top Secret is the one with the cow. Right, right, right. Unless there's a cow in okay, both of them. Okay, so this movie, I'm going. We've described the posters. Okay. It is John Leguizamo with a very like demonic face and some like very cool 1997 Len music video sunglasses. <laughs> he is oh, standing thin and rectangular. Target with yeah. a giant bullet heading towards him. Oh, I've seen this poster. It's um, it is that movie that I was thinking of where they were just like, "Hey, John Leguizamo, just like he's do your thing in a movie." If he is annoying, what would you call an annoying person? The pest. The pest. The pest. I haven't thought of the pest in 30 years. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. I can't believe... I mean, I can believe it because, again, that's the movie that most sort of, like, let John Leguizamo do his thing in a film. It has to be because he's first billed and he's a credited screenwriter on the movie. But why in the Sam Hell is one of his known for... That when it could be any number of movies, when it could be it fucking could be Tu Wong Fu. Us, it could be too obviously Tu Wong Fu. It's could be insane. The, any of the Ice Age movies. How about Summer of Sam? Yeah, where he's like the lead in a Spike Lee movie. How about that? How about Hadapero Odebye? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I got into that cadence, but I feel like he's graduated to just being like a lot of sort of milk toasty sort of. Movies. Although I guess he's in one of the John Wick movies. Now that I'm looking he's at his incredible uh, actor, none of the Ice Age movies too. Also, which I think is maybe his probably best known role at this point in terms of like recognizability. Yeah. Anyway, good anyway. choice in stumping me, you jerk. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I still love you. Uh, that is our episode. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Remember, Weird Gay Challenge 2020. Go out there and watch Spawn. Uh, Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. Uh, I, who am just realizing that I'm probably going to have to watch Spawn now, now that I've challenged all of you weird gays. Uh, I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. So wait for me to log my opinion of Spawn. We'd like to thank <laughs> Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so get your betrothed to pick the shrapnel out of your flat ass and write us a review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Hey! Bella Bambina! Bella Bambina!